The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights through the Insights series. ABSA is a registered FSP. What an interesting day it has been in the aftermath of bloody conflict in Israel, between Israel and Gaza. Uh, War declared over the weekend, raising the number of active conflicts in the world and in one of the world's great political hotspots to very, very high levels. Consequences in markets are interesting they are not as dramatic as you might have thought. Why is that? And are we just in some sort of phony war phase where markets are quite calm and are yet to fully assimilate what is going down and what potentially could go wrong in that part of the world? Or can we breathe a sigh of relief that um, it remains localized for now? We'll pick up on that story this evening. We will also catch up with Paul Nixon at half past seven. Paul is a behavioral economist, behavioral scientist, if you would. There's somebody who looks at the behavior of human beings in stressful situations. We're going to make it personal for him this evening on how I make money. Looking forward to that conversation coming up later on. Why African Rainbow Capital is considering delisting from the JSE, joining a long queue of companies doing similar things. Uh, we'll talk about the new CEO coming through at Goldfields. It is um, sort of, I don't know, transfer season, if you like, in the world of chief executives at the moment, some voluntarily, some not. Also, this, this weird phenomenon that I'm picking up in US media in particular, and I don't know if it's media hype gone mad, whether or not there's something in it. So we'll investigate it in some detail this evening. But these appetite-suppressing drugs that were created to uh, battle diabetes suddenly discovered that uh, people with diabetes take these drugs, don't feel so hungry anymore. So they start eating less. Their weight drops. And as their weight drops, so do the issues around diabetes in many cases. And suddenly people are going, hold on a second, this is a new miracle weight loss drug. Uh, there are a couple of side effects and downsides. We'll talk to Dr. Ryan Noach, the Chief Executive at Discovery Health. Uh, and we'll also get a Senior Retail Analyst to Trade Intelligence, Andrea Duplessis, this evening as to whether or not this truly can be having the sort of impact that U.S. publications seem to suggest that it is having on the profits of beer companies, sweet manufacturers, and other food producers. It seems a little far-fetched, but perhaps there is data to back it up. Looking forward to all of that this evening here on The Money Show. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. And of course, as always, your WhatsApps, your SMSs, your tweets and other messages through to us tonight on The Money Show. As major airlines around the world cancel flights to Israel or at least warn of future travel disruption, the security situation in that part of the world deteriorating considerably over the weekend. We know so far that Air France, Lufthansa and Emirates have all suspended flights to Tel Aviv. Virgin Atlantic has warned of cancellations and delays from Heathrow. BA has altered its schedule. That comes after a weekend of fighting between Hamas in the Gaza Strip and Israel. About 700 people have been killed in that part of the world since Saturday for the 500 dying in Gaza. 
in retaliatory airstrikes. Those are the best numbers we've got, about 1,200 in total. So, yeah, we watch this very, very closely. Could this be a big blow to ambitions for Israel in the wider Middle Eastern region? What does this mean for economic stability? What does it mean for the prices of commodities? What does it mean for the prices of shares? Certainly 10, 15 years ago, Dion Chos, Chief Investment Officer at Credo in London, I would have thought a far more dramatic market response than we have seen today. Today, fairly calm, actually. Yes, Bruce. I I think the markets, as you say, over the years has figured out that conflicts like these uh, are typically relatively short-lived and maybe don't justify too much of a general movement. Certainly, when it comes to uh, specific sectors, I think we have seen some pretty big moves. You just mentioned uh, flight cancellations there, and you can see in the share prices of a, a company like Ryanair, for example, today, which I'm not sure they even fly to Israel, but their share price is down about 3.5% the last time I checked. Um, and on the flip side of the equation, obviously it has an impact on oil supply around the world or the sort of forecasts of oil supply and hence the price. So we've seen the oil price move and we've seen Oil stocks move uh, an average of 3 to 4% practically at the market opening this morning. Uh, obviously, oil stocks up, uh, airline stocks down. Um, and then the other specific sector, which clearly um, will discount the effects of a potential bigger war, uh, are some of the larger international defense stocks. Uh, names like Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin spring to mind. And, and these stocks uh, were up uh, sort of uh, more than 5% of the opening. And the last time I checked, Northrop Grumman was was up uh, something like 11.5% on the day. But having said all that, uh, those are three specific sectors I've highlighted. In terms of the, the broader market, uh, the S&P 500, for example, which arguably is the most important index uh, benchmark in the world, is relatively flat. Um, it's down uh, 0.1 or 0.2% today, and it's been hovering around that essentially since the opening. So in, in, in general terms, the market for now at least is uh, seems to be taking it in its stride. Uh, exactly right. And I, I am pleased about that. And I also, as I looked at it in terms of what was happening uh, last night, as I get a, a, a little email from my friends at the Financial Times, and they say the week ahead, uh, and they looked, you know, they look at key issues for the week ahead. They didn't even mention it last night. So there was almost the sense that actually, for now, at least what is a horrible, violent and ruthless um, assault on Israel and an equally ruthless assault right back on Hamas in the Gaza Strip um, is something that for now is being perceived as not having too many consequences beyond uh, a fairly limited radius. Well, yet, I, I would add at the end of that sentence. Yes, you know, I think yes. it all depends on what happens next. Uh, but, but talking about the email that you received last night from your friends at the FT, someone else who used to be at the FT for a long time uh, and moved uh, to Bloomberg about five years ago is John Authors, uh, a name I'm sure you know well. Yes. Um, and I get, a da- I get a daily email from John, um, you know, because I'm oh. subscribed to his list. And uh, his email hit my inbox at six o'clock local time this morning. Um, and the headline uh, was that Gaza won't hamper markets unless Israel strikes Iran. And I think ultimately that sums it up. You know, it's all about next steps. Yeah. It's all about how this escalates and whether it becomes a really hot war involving larger regions of the world and nuclear powers, you know, poised against each other. So so it's too early, I think, to, you know, to, to say that uh, the markets are simply calm in the face of the storm. It certainly just depends on how the storm plays out, politically speaking, and, you know, at a military sense in the next 
uh, few days and weeks. I don't know if you uh, follow uh, sort of fin-twit royalty in South Africa, Karen Richards, who's a regular commentator on big issues each and every single day. And she says at least one of these macro events in the past has preceded major market ructions. And she goes, Fed tightening, inverted yield curve, oil spike, strong dollar, geopolitical tensions. Then she goes, we have them all in spades. There's an awful lot going on in the world, Dion, that should, you know, should anything escalate dramatically on any one of those fronts could have an equally negative impact on the value of our long-term savings. Absolutely. I think, you know, the Fed's behavior has a, has a bigger impact than, than than a war like this, typically speaking, especially if it's if it's unexpected. Uh, you know, just just cast your mind back, um, Bruce, uh, about uh, what's it, twenty months now, when we started seeing uh, the war in Russia in, in Ukraine, when yep. Russia started uh, invading Ukraine, uh, that happened at the end of February last year. Um, and I remember uh, that the market responded in essentially the same way, even though there was talk of nuclear war practically overnight. And a month after that war started, you know, end of March last year, the market was up five percent. So, so the markets generally tend to take these things in their stride. But yes, an unexpected announcement by the Fed uh, or certain other events can certainly have a bigger impact. In fact, you know what's interesting? Uh, I looked at the, the history of the Northrop Grumman share price today. Today is the second biggest day in the history of Northrop Grumman being up double digits. You know what was the biggest day? It was in March 2020, the end of March 2020. That is when the Fed came with its rescue package in the wake of COVID. Uh. It went up 10% that day because people became bullish on stock prices. So that that proves it. The, the Fed had a bigger impact on the Northrop Grumman's. There, there was no war in March 2020, <laughs> except for the war on COVID. Yeah. Um, but Northrop Grumman did better on one particular day that year than it did today. The Fed has far too much power, I think is the point. Thank you so much, Dion Ghost. Dion uh, is the Chief Investment Officer at the Credo Group in London. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, providing action-led insights in the consumer goods and services sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. Peter Armitage is Chief Executive of Anchor Capital. Before we talk about what we got you to talk about, Peter, just a quick thought on market reactions and market likely reactions in the days and weeks ahead uh, following this violence that we've seen erupt in the Middle East? Yeah, Bruce, it's obviously horrendous. uh, But I think, as Dion said, um, you know, the markets, the the actual impact on companies sitting in the U.S. or sitting around the world is uh, fairly muted. you know, it might be an insensitive thing to say, but that's uh, factual. Unless, of course, I mean, the biggest impact from an actual financial point of view might well be the oil price. Um, and, you know, that can feed through into some uh, Fed actions and costs for companies, etc. But, uh, yeah, yeah geopolitical that, risks have, have gone mad. They've gone completely and utterly nuts. The, the 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 topic of discussion for us this evening has got nothing to do with those risks. And it's reports today that African Rainbow Capital is considering delisting from the JSE, joining a growing and long list of companies that feel their true value has not been realized on the stock market. Your own company was one of those companies. And I suppose you can empathize um, with management teams that are looking at this and saying, we're just not getting the sort of flows of investment that we thought we would get. We, we're better off doing this quietly and unhindered in the private domain of, you know, running our own business and not having to report publicly every six months. 
Yeah, absolutely, Bruce. There's uh, lots of negatives to being listed in terms of number of shareholders and communication and uh, JSC rules and the like. I think the JSC has done what they can to try and make it a, a more friendly atmosphere. Um, but ultimately, if GDP growth is low and confidence levels are low in the country, um, it results in low valuations. And uh, if you don't, if you can't see the prospect of being able to raise capital at what you think is a fair value for your business, um, you know, probably more than 50% of the reason for being listed disappears. So as you said, if we delisted in February 20, uh, 2021, uh, you know, we thought our company was worth a lot more than what the market did. So we're very happy to borrow money and uh, buy our shareholders out. And it's turned out to be the right thing to do. So it's a sad reality. Um, African Randomer Capital itself, I think it's trading, it's, you know, kind of listed and is consistently traded below its listing price and well below its, uh, some of the parts valuation. So it's, from a pure economic point of view, if you take all emotion and backing SA, et cetera, out of it, it's, uh, look, they're going to have to offer more than the share price. And I think that's, that's the attraction for guys in the JSC. There's a lot of companies out there that are worth a lot more than the share price and people are prepared to back it up with real money. Here's the thing. I mean, I'm sure the Johans, Johan van Sale and Johan van Marwe just got sick and tired of having to defend the valuations they put on companies versus the valuations that investors were, purport- were prepared to put on the whole of African Rainbow Company, uh, Rainbow Capital, which is made up of 25% stakes in a whole host. I think up 50 odd um, South African companies from Valdivie to all sorts of other phenomenal South African businesses. But um, they say it's worth 10. The market says, no, it's worth five. And these guys are kind of stuck in this no man's land of a, a negative valuation. There is no point unless we prepare to stump up and support these companies and say, yes, we believe that you are worth that, that they should stick around and, and provide investment options for us. Yeah, I mean, you've got two of the smartest uh uh, SA businessman backed by Matsepe, uh, fantastic track records. And you, know, you, you can argue about their own company dynamics. I think they have some very attractive investments. But ultimately, all small or mid-cap businesses, you know, trading below 10 billion rand odd, are all trading at between 20 and 60% below what we think their, their true value is. And you know, private equity companies who are prepared to do proper valuations and do discounted kind of cash flows and businesses, uh, come up with value significantly higher, so it's not really an African rainbow capital issue. I think there's, you know, there's been a, you know, uh, uh, ten or twenty or thirty, you know, really good company delistings over the course of the last year or two, uh, and I think there's another ten or twenty to come. Unfortunately, the interest rates do make yeah, it more difficult. Sure. Absolutely. And, but it just, it narrows the domestic investment options for people. And I, I mean, you said, let's try and ignore the emotional side of it. I like African Rainbow Capital because it gives you access to real South Africa, real entrepreneurs doing real things in the real economy, creating real jobs, creating real growth in the economy. And that was the dream of this listing was to, I think, showcase that ideal. And it's just not working out the way in which they'd hoped. Bruce, I mean, to give you an indication, in my kids' long-term portfolios, I own some African Rainbow Capital shares. So, you know, I like the range of businesses. If you're a long-term investor, the value will come out. So if that happens, it might have to be through a delisting. Um, but the range of businesses that they've invested in and the prospects for value creation over a, a reasonable time period, I think, are fantastic. Um, but they're, they're not alone. You know, the market is simply not prepared to place uh, appropriate values on the assets. 
And it's not just the smaller businesses. You know, if you look at the Remgos and the bigger companies, they're all trading at discounts. So I think things that aren't priced by foreign fund managers that are, you know, genuinely um, SA shares driven by, driven by SA shareholders. So, the, you know, the, this is a discount to fair value or some of the part-time valuation for African Razor Capital. Um, there's lots of really good businesses that, you know, if you look at their PE multiples, um, you would, you know, they would, they're worth 10 to 12 PE multiples and they're trading at five to six. You know, I can give you a list of 15 really good quality companies of great management. And I think they're all considering, uh, you know, what route to take and uh, how best to realize value for the shareholders. Peter Armitage, thank you. Chief Executive at Anchor Capital took that decision himself as Chief Executive of that company to lead his management team to go private. They've done it. They don't regret it. Not for a moment. African Rainbow Capital considering the same. The Money Show. The Markets. And on to uh, markets this evening. Uh, Siboniso Ngomalo is the Chief Investment Officer at the Old Mutual Investment Group. Uh, your worries, fears, concerns, Hamas versus Israel, day three of a war that has been declared in a notoriously volatile region of the world. Any panic in the corridors of the mighty Old Mutual today, Siboniso? Oh, okay. So Sibonisa was not there, I'm told. Meryl uh, is Meryl Pick will be joining us in just a moment. Uh, so my producer just calling Meryl, um, which is a very good thing to do when you call Meryl because she answers and she'll be fine. Uh, Goldfields, it operates its only mine in South Africa. It's South Deep. Uh, it's appointed a new chief executive. The old the previous guy was there for a year, I think. Yeah, only about a year. Uh, Michael Fraser, who's a South African, is currently the CEO of an AIM-listed gold company called Sharat Gold. Uh, previously worked at South 32. His job to find new gold deposits. So the company, which still has its headquarters in South Africa, is looking for new mines in places like Chile and Canada, where there are still decent gold reserves worth exploiting. Let's get hold of Meryl Pick this evening, Portfolio Manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group. From an investment perspective, anything worrying you about the uh, the next couple of weeks, Meryl, in the Middle East? Good evening, Bruce, um, and good evening to your listeners. I think as previous callers have highlighted, the immediate impact um, we're seeing is on the oil price. Um, I think already the oil market has been tight and volatile and responding to production cuts out of OPEC+. Plus. Um, so clearly the market and traders are looking ahead. Um, historically, any conflict in the Middle East has, has had negative impact on supply. Um, and I think any moves to sustain a higher for longer oil price will feed through into um, inflation and almost every other commodity. So that is the one thing um, to watch. I think it also just adds to the number of areas of conflict globally and the level of geopolitical tension um, globally, whether the, the West will have you know, appetite to throw their weight behind or get involved in this conflict in any way, given already um, debate about how much more money to, to, to allocate from defense spending towards Ukraine. Uh, that will remain to be seen. This this might remain quite isolated and regional. 
It, it, certainly the market is betting on that for now. And it is, as our guests have said this evening, and you, you're intimating this evening, it's all about who reacts and how they react and what the consequences of those reactions might be. The most serious of which is a, a throttling of global oil supply, for example, which becomes inflationary. And then central banks feel the need to respond with higher interest rates in an environment where growth is very hard to come by anyway. And then finally tip us all into a recessionary environment. And that causes its own kind of, of shape. Up. In the short term, great for commodities generally um, in terms of the shares. And it, it's weird to be celebrating gains in share prices in a day of horror and bloodshed. But that's yeah. the way markets work. They respond to what is happening in the world around them. Unfortunately so. So, you know, we've seen the oil price um, and the precious metals rally today. Um, so in particularly uh, something like Sassol is up 6%, something like Harmony Gold, which is highly leveraged to the gold price, is up uh, nearly 8%. And then the PGMs showing their, you know, their characteristics, they have a bit of investment um, demand as well. Um, and, and they're not as strong as gold today, but still up. I think what will be interesting, you know, I think what caught us off guard with um, Ukraine markets as, as a whole, perhaps, um, or certainly certain camps of the market, was which supply chains were dependent on Ukraine. And only as that conflict became uh, drawn out and escalated, you know, we, we, we scrambled to learn about Ukraine. So, um, and we made similar assumptions with Ukraine that this would be a quick and short-lived thing. The scale of this attack does seem to be, or conflict does seem to be uh, catching the world of God. So I wouldn't be too complacent and I would just spend the next two or three days figuring out, right, what are the dependencies on Israel? For example, here and there, anecdotally, there are, you know, tech startups, certain technologies that are supported or incubated in Israel. Does this conflict have an impact or not? So I think before being too complacent, it is worth checking with holding companies, et cetera, how does this actually um, affect you? You might find specific agricultural products being exported from there. Um, so I think it's always worth doing homework when something like this happens. Meryl, thank you. Meryl Pick is Portfolio Manager at the Old Mutual Investment Group on the line to us uh, from Cape Town this evening. Uh, all share index from the JSE, just nine points down. A negative day across the US and London, Paris and Frankfurt turned into the red as well. Commodity prices were solid though. Gold above 1850 Platinum headed toward 900 Brent crude oil also ticked up, $88 a barrel. Good day for gold and for Platinum shares. Also for oil stock, Sassel coming through strongly on the day two. It's half past six. Now time for the very latest eyewitness news. Here's Veronica Mohwadi. 7.02. Bruce is on The Money Show. Thank you, Anthony, very much. Talking this evening in the first half hour of the show all about the relatively muted market response to the crisis in Israel and Gaza. Uh, as he reports in the last couple of minutes, Benjamin Netanyahu has had a conversation with Joe Biden saying that Israel's got no choice but to go in with ground forces. They've called up 300,000 of their backup forces, people who have done their national service in the past, who are still well-armed and um, and are capable of uh, ground actions. 
this uh, will escalate before it de-escalates for that much i am certain on your next money show maya fisher french uh, from maya on money will be head teacher of the investment school we'll talk about property whether it's more risky than buying shares zetu damane the strategic officer at mccann joburg talking about heroes and zeros from the world of advertising pick up on what's happening in the middle east and of course all of the other big scary stories of the day next time on the money show bruce whitfield on the money show 6 to 8 p.m the money show brought to you by absa cib driving impactful action-led insights through the insights series absa is a registered fsp which is a financial services provider for the uninitiated uh, we will we'll, uh, talk to dr ryan noach in just a moment ryan is the chief executive at discovery health we'll also pick up with analyst uh, andrea duplessis senior retail analyst to trade intelligence into a really weird phenomenon that american publications are picking up on and i'm wondering whether or not one we believe them two what the consequences will be and toby shapshack the chief at stuff studios uh tech with toby this evening looking at armor-plated trainers uh that is if you have a a strong outdoor or outdoor habit that you need to fulfill and after eyewitness news the new chief executive at goldfields i'm told will be joining us so that is worth staying tuned for this evening here on the money show 702. SMS Bruce. On 31702. Well, one of the biggest medical trends at the moment is a new series of drugs that were designed to help diabetes patients that were then found to be an appetite suppressant, which has got the effect of sustained weight loss in those that take it, provided, of course, they stay on the medication. I'm seeing reports, though, linking a drop in American retail profits to these drugs. And my first reaction is surely not. Surely there isn't that level of volume and that level of impact on beer companies and on companies that make sweets and food manufacturers. Surely that's not possible. Let's get a bit of insight first from Dr. Ryan Noach, Chief Executive at Discovery Health. I mean, these are being purported as miracle drugs. They've been around for a little while now, Ryan, but they certainly have got uh, a very strong hold on the public zeitgeist. Quick summary, what are they? Why do they work? And, uh, you know, what do you make of them? Hi, Bruce. Thanks for having me on this fascinating subject. I should start with a disclaimer. I'm not an endocrinologist or a diabetologist, and I'm not an expert on these drugs, but certainly I think... Most, can help most of us inform- couldn't even spell those words, never mind say them, Ryan, so I think you're in safe company. But yes, okay. I mean, just be a, you, you are a guy who's going to be asked to pay for these things at some point, so you've done some research, I have no doubt. So these are part of what's called the GLP-1 antagonist group. It's a particular receptor that it works on in the brain, um, and uh, it, it really blocks this receptor. And the, the mechanism of action, the way that the drugs work, is it reduces your um, feelings of hunger and your appetite. Uh, and effectively what that does is lands up in slowing the release of food from the stomach and increasing the feeling of satiety, which is that feeling of fullness after you've eaten. So it effectively deceives your brain into believing that you're not hungry. It slows down the movement of food out of your stomach and gives you a feeling of being full all the time. There is probably more to the mechanism of action than just this, though at this stage of their evolution or their popularity, that's the part that is well understood, Bruce. 
Now, this is an accidental and, finding in these drugs. Sorry, I interrupted. Exactly. No, no, no. I, I interrupt everybody all the time. It's one of my great weaknesses. Um, but here, Ryan, you've got these drugs and people that were being tested to see whether or not they could help diabetes patients. And we know diabetes is a, is a, a silent pandemic in many parts of the world, including in South Africa. Now people are looking at these drugs and saying, yes, it helps reduce weight and it helps therefore reduce some of the symptoms and some of the devastating aspects of diabetes. Therefore, these are a good thing. But people are starting, in some societies, it looks like, to pop these things like Smarties, and it's a little bit scary. Yeah, the the amazing thing is that they have been around for quite some time for the treatment of diabetes. And certainly in the case of Wegovy, Wegovy, which is available in South Africa, uh, we've been paying for diabetic members to use Wegovy for quite some time here in South Africa. Um, the finding of this um, massive and impressive impact on obesity, on weight reduction, uh, is a secondary, a second order, almost incidental finding, and now is driving the popularity of the drugs. Now, that's not unheard of in medicine. You probably know of the case of, um, of a common erection drug, uh, Viagra, which was originally patented for the treatment of cardiac conditions and for its yep. positive effects on the heart. But the fact that all the cardiac patients that took it landed up improving their sexual lives changed the nature of of, um, Viagra and became Pfizer's biggest hitting drug ever. So that's a bit of the story here. And the manufacturers of these drugs are feeling, I think, probably very fortunate that there is this craze emerging. It's not without complexity, Bruce. Um, And I should give this as a very clear and probably the most important part of my message. The first part is that um, they're not all registered for the treatment of weight loss. And Ozempic particularly, which is a a popular one in the U.S. and the U.K., is not registered for the treatment of weight loss. It's only registered for the treatment of diabetes. So the use for weight loss is theoretically what we say off-label. In other words, it doesn't really appear on that prescription leaflet, and there hasn't been sufficient testing and evidence-based medicine in this regard. Notwithstanding that, it's highly effective. People tend to lose a lot of weight. But believe it or not, Bruce, the side effect profile is quite severe and about 20 to 30 percent. So that's one in five to one in four people that take it uh, don't tolerate the drug and have to stop its use. Um, And so these side effects are not to be taken lightly. And there is some concern by the regulators, by Novo, who produces uh, Ozempic, they the manufacturer, and by doctors around the world about these side effects and this off-label use. So you're not rushing, as Discovery, then to prescribe it for your uh, weightier clients who say, you know what, Ryan, this will save you money in the long term. You put me on a lifetime supply of these Ozempic drugs or what is the other one, Wegovy. Uh, I'm not diabetic, but I'm a bit chunky. It'll save you knee surgeries later on. So can I have the pills, please? You're not falling over yourself yet to be making these things available. Well, it's, it's a complex debate. I mean, in the first instance, it's a semantic, but it's important I say it. We're not in the business of prescribing any drugs. That's done by the health professionals. Our role is to fund it. And your question is, would we fund it? You know, the the business case, the return on investment for health insurers of funding effective weight loss regimes is is quite strong. I mean, it shows a positive return on investment. Weight loss and obesity or being overweight is a significant health risk factor. 
and is associated with a range of complex long-term health issues. And so there may well be a business case in time that emerges to say that if this is safe and effective just for weight loss, that particularly high-risk categories of patients should receive some funding, a portion of funding towards this, um, in order to you know, reduce their long-term health risk. I must say the following, Bruce. All of these drugs are not prescribed in isolation. They're part of a broader weight loss program. And if you read about these drugs, the theory is very strongly uh, narrated that there must be a change to a nutrition program and there must be some lifestyle change, including an exercise program introduced concomitantly. Now, we see in the US and the UK where there are some isolated patches of funding emerging for these drugs. And these are actually on the margin and the main people are paying for it out of their pockets. Where the funding does emerge, patients are always expected to contribute some of the costs, considering an engaged patient with a lifestyle program is going to be more compliant. And in addition to that, there are particular milestones and measurements that are are checked along the pathway to make sure that compliance is persistent so that, you know, if somebody's not complying and they're not achieving the weight loss targets, then the funding, uh, you know, is withdrawn. So the funding is complex. It's not off the table. It's certainly way too early here in South Africa to start talking about that. These drugs are still undergoing regulatory scrutiny by our regulators who haven't given the full go-ahead yet. Thank you, Dr. Ryan Note, Chief Executive at Discovery Health. Listening to that, Andrea Duplessis, Senior Retail Analyst at Trade Intelligence. What struck me as odd here, Andrea, was that these reports are now saying that share prices of places like Walmart and food manufacturers and companies that make sweets and chocolates and companies that make beer are now falling partly as a result of America's consumption habits changing. And I just thought to myself, hold on a second, how many of these pills have got to be consumed on a daily basis to truly have an impact on any one of those sectors? What is your research telling you about the impact of these weight loss drugs on business and people doing business? So I must be honest, um, it certainly sounds like a bit of a stretch. And it would be great to see the actual numbers to substantiate such claims. Um, it really sounds um, like there's a, a bit of a disconnect because if we have a look at shopper behavior and how that impacts retail sales numbers and uh, performance of um, supply companies within the, the retail business, there are so many factors driving and influencing shopper behavior. In South Africa in particular, it's very complex. And at this point in time, for example, if you just look at the impact of the macro environment on people's behavior around snacks and sweets. We do see some interesting shifts that certainly don't speak to the the impact of this drug. So a very complex topic to sort of link to to these um, claims. Of I'm, very, uh, I'm very glad you say so, Andrea, because I mean, again, you know, some of my some of my colleagues in the media, like some colleagues in any industry, sometimes do uh, what uh, a skirt on the outskirts of uh, veracity when it comes to the accuracy of their reporting. But this was on Bloomberg. Stock prices for some snack and beverage companies fell after Walmart reported seeing an impact on shopping demand from people taking a new weight loss drug. This is coming out of Walmart. This is coming out of you know, the biggest mm-hmm. physical retailer in the world. 
saying that it's a blow for soft drink manufacturers, chocolate, booze, and others. Walmart said that seeing the impact on shopping demand from people taking Ozempic, Wegovy, and other appetite-suppressing medications. There's something in it, but I'm not too sure that it's necessarily on a scale that we're being held to believe is, in fact, the case. Yeah, I, I must say, I think we're on the same page there. And, um, you know, it, it's very, like I said, it's so multifaceted. If you have a look at what impacts retail sales, we, for example, look at retail trade sales in South Africa at the moment, and it's so easy to misinterpret because a, a lot of the um, reports that come out are impacted by inflation. So there's a lot of talk within our local industries, for example, in terms of volume decline in certain retail categories. Although if you look at the revenue performance, it certainly um, paints a different picture. So it is, it, I must say I'm not disputing the, the claims or the, the numbers that are quoted by ethical sources or credible sources, but it certainly sounds like a bit of a stretch to me. And also, again, I wouldn't put it past companies that have seen their performance, um, you know, decline, grasping at straws and looking for explanations. And this is a good one as any sometimes to try and deflect away from your own performance. But thank you, Andrea Duplessis, who's a senior retail analyst at Trade Intelligence, pouring cool water, not cold water, cool water on the veracity and the depth of those claims. Coming up in a moment, Toby Shepshack, Chief at Stuff Studios. We're looking at trainers this evening because, as you can tell, Toby and I are both fine athletic specimens and we need to know what the best trainers in the world are to keep up with our rigorous exercise regimes, or at least we can live vicariously through others. But it's a different kind of tech with Toby this evening in a moment. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. I love this take on tech this evening. Toby Shapshak, the Chief at Stuff Studios. Talk to me about the technology that is going into running shoes, into trainers, into athletic shoes, the shoes that some people wear for fashion, some people wear for purpose. But there's a war out there in what is going on to the high end of these particular items, I think you call them. Items, yes. Uh, shoes. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, what do you, what do you say on a day like today? I mean, I, I thought of this last week, actually, because I was tired of talking about how to survive load shredding. Um, and I've been fascinated by these because, as you mentioned, you and I are, well, I call myself a non-practicing health fanatic. I know all the theory. I know all the, you know, things to do. I have at times in my life done that, but I'm not particularly fond of running. But I do walk the dog and I have been doing a lot of walking and these are fantastic shoes to walk in. Of course, they're not designed for that. They're designed for running, but it's the same motion, just a different pace. Hey, Bruce, it's the, you know, they have walking in the Olympics. Um, and what's that's, fascinating that's, that's about, lazy, fascinating about lazy, this, and guys. Sorry, I heard Toby, you mention earlier that, that, uh, they Toby. were, they were armor Toby. plated. Um, which is also my first reaction. They, they carbon plated and it's a plate of carbon that runs through the shoe, um, from the heel to the toe. And it is amazingly comfortable both to walk and run in these shoes. And of course, um, they, they call it under armor. These, these shoes, by the way, are about called under armor flow velocity elite. Uh, and they call it a full length thermoset carbon plate, which is engineered for the perfect quote snappy sensation, uh, giving off a light, fast, explosive feel. 
Um, so there you go. It's That's what they call it. And it really is. I mean, it's just remarkable, Bruce. That's why I wanted to talk about them. Previous Under Armour shoes have had Bluetooth sensors in them that you can sync to your phone. And they, you know, if you're a, 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 a professional runner or a triathlete like my long-suffering business partner, Sally Hudson, uh, that kind of information is very useful. Cadence, strike rate, all that other, you know, those big words, those practicing health fanatics use, Bruce. But what I've been fascinated by is that these shoes are just amazingly comfortable. And that alone is, is remarkable. I've been wearing trainers for, you know, 30, 40 years. I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, a institutionalized slacker. I've been getting away with wearing tackies for as much time as I can. And of course, you know, that's the, the part of the reason I like these is because Under Armour says they have warp technology used in the upper to the tongue, to the sock liner. I mean, warp technology, Bruce, you of course know that's Star Trek, hey, and not Star Wars, the, the, uh, precisely. The now that's engine, the one thing right? I do know about the, about the difference between these two. But the, the point is that this is <laughs> huge technology, Vibram we're familiar with, um, and they make soles for so many trainers, but it's this idea that you can use these really space age technologies to fundamentally yes. shift the wearing experience and if you are a serious athlete, and uh, I do recall the year that the first year that Mr. Price brought out their trainers and six out of the top 10 people who won that race, won in these trainers, which at the time were like 500 bucks a pair or something, um, that this isn't going to be the thing that either makes you win the, the comrades or not. You're going to need talent as well. Yeah. But this does, I mean, just looking at the wonderful technology, the amount of money that's going to research and development and the technologies involved in making these things, it truly is changing the future of function, design, and, and comfort. Well, I'm glad you said it much more eloquently than I did, Bruce. And I was going to say, are oh, they gift to train in China? But the, the, hey. the it's true because <laughs> it, the, this <laughs> kind of high-end development in the high-end shoes will filter down to the rest of the shoes. You know, that's that's how technology and, and, and its advances um, that it, uh, that it filters down to the mass market. And that's great. You know, I'm, I, I, I can see how much of a difference this can make for somebody. And I've, I also kind of poo pooed this idea that you could get a spring in your step or a bit of extra bounce, but you really do, you know, and that's, you know, that's fascinating. It may not be my form of technology. It that doesn't certainly doesn't get me out of bed in the morning, but. I can see amazing technology where it's uh, it's being developed, and good luck to those five AM runner people. Um, take Just pictures um, and maybe, post them on Instagram. Maybe the best thing about these shoes is they don't make a floppy plodding noise on the road outside when they run past our houses. That way, we can sleep peacefully while they are out running. Somebody's just sent me a memo from an early marketing director of Nike from 40 years ago. And the memo is 10 points long. Our businesses change. We're in offense all the time. Perfect results count. This is about a battle as it is about business. Assume nothing. Your job isn't done until the job is done. Be careful of bureaucracy, personal ambition, energy takers versus energy givers. It won't be pretty. Talking about the fight that started with Nike all of those years ago. If you haven't read Phil Knight's Shoe Dog, you need to read it because it started a revolution in sports footwear that continues to this day. Toby Shapshak highlighting this evening a brand new shoe called the Flow Velocity Elite 
from the Under Armour stable. And they're the first carbon-plated shoe. Not necessarily for you and me, if you are one of those people who'd rather be in bed than on the road. But for those on the road, there is great technology happening and changing the dynamics of that that will filter down to the rest of us in time and we'll all be grateful for it. After Eyewitness News, the new chief executive of Goldfields, we will also this evening do our business book review and how I make money this evening, a behavioral economist and what happened to them when their business got into trouble in COVID. How did they respond? That's the interesting bit coming up on The Money Show in the next hour. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702. Let's walk the talk. On 92.7 and 106 FM. The Money Show brought to you by ABSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights through the Insight Series. ABSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show. If you listen to Eyewitness News at half past six, you would have heard the story of the Harvard professor, 77-year-old Harvard professor, who has become only the third woman ever to win the Nobel Prize for Economics. Claudia Golden is her name. She's been recognized for her work in advancing the understanding of women's labor market outcomes. Just essentially, if you simplify it a bit, um, what women get for doing a full day's work. That's really what it is. Uh, The judges said she provided the first comprehensive account of women's earnings and labor market outcomes throughout the centuries, revealing the main causes of change and the main sources of the remaining gender gap. She's gone back hundreds of years and she's done deep research into this, which is why they've given her the Nobel Prize. One of the most counterintuitive findings is that women's participation in paid employment does not increase steadily over time. That's interesting. You would think more women are in work today than perhaps were, I don't know, 150, 200 years ago. Maybe you would think because of economic growth, there are more opportunities and you would see that that would be the case. But nearly 60% of married women were in work, according to uh, Claudia Golden, the professor from Harvard. Nearly 60% of married women were in work at the end of the 18th century. Now, That I would never have guessed, but it does make sense when you consider that many people in those days were working in agriculture, cottage industries, in homes. But uh, over time, this proportion of working women has actually dropped industrialization, making it a lot harder to combine work in factories with family duties. So women had to make a choice as to whether or not they would continue to work or not spend hours in a factory to which they would have to travel rather than work locally and domestically. Another pivotal finding is the persistent influence of educational choices that women make early on in their lives. And for many women, they don't expect to be spending that much time in the labor market because they might want to have families. They may say, well, if I have a family that takes me out of the labor markets, I'm going to make a different kind of career choice. And that limits their choices much later, says Claudia Golden. This is logical stuff, but proven now empirically. Uh, It really impacts their choices later on when they return to work, when their children reach independence. And suddenly they go, hold on a second, we should have made different educational choices many years ago. Fascinating insights from the woman who today has been named as Nobel Prize winner for economics, Harvard professor Claudia Golden, changing perspectives through research. The Money Show. With Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702. 
might be my imagination, but there does seem to have been a fairly rapid turnover in chief executives at gold mining company Goldfield. Mike Fraser is uh, the new chief executive at Goldfields. He is South African born. He's worked in gold and in, in the minerals industry for a long time and has just been named by the board as the new chief executive. When do you actually take over, Mike? Good evening. Hi, good evening, Bruce, and good evening to your listeners. Um, Bruce, um, my effective starting date is 1st of January, um, but I will start uh, leading in slowly with the team and working on them so that when I hit the ground running on the 1st of January, it won't be new. Uh, you're not new to gold mining. I mean, you are chief executive of an AIM, an alternative investment market listing in London, right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, the company I'm with at the moment is a much smaller company. It's at the junior end of the sector. Um, but it is in gold mining. And so it's been an interesting uh, opportunity to learn learn about the sector at a very different uh, different angle, as it were. Um, and, and coming to Goldfields and back to Johannesburg feels a lot more um, like what I've been used to working at South 32 prior to that in BHP. Um, and certainly the geographies that Goldfields operate in are, are very, um, I, I know them well. What is your thinking around remaining headquartered in South Africa? Anglo Gold Ashanti no longer mines gold in South Africa. Uh, one of your predecessors sold off most of the goldfield South African mines to Neil Froneman at Sibanya and created Sibanya Gold, keeping only the South Deep mine uh, in the stable. That's performing quite nicely as far as I can tell. Most of your interests are way out of South Africa and your new exploration is as far away as Chile and Canada. Now, the last time I looked at flights from either one of those places, even by private jet, it takes an awfully long time to get to those geographies. Does a long-term sort of future for a company like Goldfields make sense in Joburg? Oh, look, I think the one thing I can offer, uh, Bruce, is that there's certainly no intention anytime soon to con- even consider uh, the domicile issue for, for Goldfields. So, you know, Goldfields is going to be based in Johannesburg, certainly for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, as we think about uh, the growth of the company, you can't choose where the geology is and where the, the next development is going to be. So that will always be a, an open question as to where, where next from a development point of view. Um, but I can confidently say that, you know, we'll, we will go where the, where the right opportunity exists from a, a development point of view. But, you know, we've got good access to people in South Africa. We've got a strong reputation um, not just within the gold mining, but in broader mining industry. And, and I think our shareholders are not just South African. You know, we've got a broad range of shareholders. And, and certainly, I think if you look at the performance of the company, the share performance of the company over the last 12 months, um, you know, the, the shareholders have, have rewarded and recognised the prudence that the board has, has presented. So, you know, I don't think the jurisdiction uh, and the, the domicile makes any, any difference right now. It just makes it harder to go and find new prospects, I suppose. But, I mean, the, the nature of gold mining has changed so much. Where South Africa was the world's dominant gold producer in the 60s and 70s, we've exhausted our reserves of gold. And you've got to go further afield into markets that haven't been fully explored. And I suppose large swathes of Canada and places like Chile are, are rich in reserves. And gold is being a surprising commodity in terms of the way in which it's held its value. 
Uh, we're a long way away from the days where Gordon Brown was Chancellor of the Exchequer in Britain and other central banks were selling off gold reserves at, you know, four or $500 an ounce. Uh, suddenly, the, the prospect of gold and the long-term nature of gold as a store of value and as a hedge against crisis, as we've seen in the last uh, 48 hours or so, um, gold's prospects remain, I think, fairly undimmed. Absolutely. And Bruce, I would say that if you look at a balanced portfolio over you know, any significant length, length of time, uh, a balanced portfolio, including gold, will always outperform a portfolio without gold because, as to your point, the world is an uncertain place and there's always volatility that creates um, a, a spark and a, and a place for gold in your portfolio. Um, if you look at our world and you just look at what's happened over the last uh, 72 hours, it again just demonstrates that, that gold is a, is a safe haven. It has got value in your portfolio. But I do think there's an obligation on, on gold miners to continue to be sensible allocators of capital. And, and maybe that hasn't always been in the past. And I think investors are becoming a lot more savvy about where to, to find their investment through gold. Um, and certainly, you know, what I stand for, and I know what Goldfield stands for, is sensible allocation of capital and growing cash flow per share, not just growing for the sake of growing. And, um, you know, I think the opportunities will present itself because, you know, Goldfield will continue to grow on the, the strength of its past decisions. And um, I can tell you that I believe that this is a company that will continue to, to outperform. Mike Fraser, fascinating insight. Thank you so much for joining us this evening at short notice. Mike Fraser, Chief Executive at Goldfields, uh, joining us on the line from Johannesburg, where he is this evening. Mike is a South African. He is currently Chief Executive of the AIM-listed Sharat Gold. Uh, AIM is the uh, alternative investment market, much smaller um, than Goldfields. Goldfields is a big, complicated and hairy beast, which has got one operation in South Africa, and that is the South Deep Mine exploration happening in Chile and in Canada with big global ambitions. And uh, we watch the space very, very closely indeed. Uh, Bronwyn Williams is standing by. We'll chat to her. She is, of course, the trend translator. Um, and uh, she is going to be taking us through her book of the week. We've asked her from Flux Trends to review for us the good, the bad and the ugly, written by the enormous intellectual capital that is the triumvirate of Greg Mills, Mills Sokol, and Ray Hartley. And looking at the numerous issues South Africa faces, the real threats to South Africa, but in all of that threat uh, is opportunity, as I always say and uh, books to this point myself in terms of looking at South Africa's prospects and saying, yes, you can either write it off as a basket case and do take the, the actions that come with that particular view of the world, or you can say, yes, it is messy. Yes, it is noisy. Yes, it is difficult. But by goodness me, in there, there is good. In there, there is bad. And in there, there is most certainly ugly. But the guys at the Brenthurst Foundation um, have decided that they are going to get a whole bunch of people together and say, right, let's cap some scenarios. We've had scenario planning over the years. Clem Sunter didn't invent scenario planning, but he certainly brought it to South Africa to be treated in a very serious fashion. And he and Chantal Ilbury and others uh, embarked on some really sensible uh, the sensible scenario planning. The Dinokeng scenarios were done five, six, seven, eight, nine, a while back. 
And there were scenarios of, you know, high road, low road, middle road, muddling along road. And these guys have kind of refreshed, I suppose, scenarios for the future of this country. It's uh, in crisis of all kinds of issues. There are, you know, we don't have enough electricity. The rail network's a catastrophe. Education is not doing what it should be doing for future generations of children who are going to be running the place very, very soon. Um, interrupted water supply and just the endemic corruption in our society that has not been invented in the last 30 years. It certainly has been perfected in many respects in a way that would make the Nats jealous of the scale and the chutzpah that is involved in some of our corruption. But certainly corruption has been part of our landscape for an awfully long time. So yes, we'll talk about all of that this evening. Bronwood Williams standing by the Trend Translator, Future Finance Specialist at Flux Trends. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield is brought to you by APSA CIB, providing action-led insights in the consumer goods and services sector to drive collaborative impact through the APSA Insights Series. APSA is a registered FSP. The Money Show. Business books. Before we get there, some very sharp-eyed observer of and lover of things South African has been watching the Beckham documentary on Netflix. I haven't got there yet, uh, but the Beckham documentary, there's a South African food product. David Beckham is cleaning the kitchen surfaces, and in the background, there is a distinctive South African food product. What is that food product? It's a, a flavorant rather than a, a, a primary food product. But somebody spotted it in the background. There it is there. There, look, look, look. And everyone's getting terribly excited on social media this evening. I'll give you a, a look-see in just a little while. But first to Bronwood Williams, the trend translator and future finance specialist of Tax Trends. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Greg Mills, Mills Soko, and Ray Hartley have captivated your attention in your time, Bronwood Williams. What did you make of it? Well, it didn't capture very much of my time. It's quite a short read. So if you are interested in reading something, you can get a lot of insight and from in quite a short amount of time. It's one of those books that you can definitely pick up and digest within a commute between Joburg and Cape Town if you do that sort of thing. Uh, this particular book was interesting because of its timing. Of course, it's, it's going to be a very time-specific, time-sensitive read too. So if you're going to read it read it now, it really is laying out the scenarios as to what plays out in the upcoming elections next year and perhaps the one set of elections after that. But it's certainly not looking at a horizon much beyond 2030. And it's sort of painting quite a dark picture in that, as you sort of mentioned in the, the lead up to, to this dialogue between us, it is very much following on the work that Claim Samsa did. In fact, Claim was actually involved in assisting them with determining how they were going to set about doing this set of scenarios and advising them along the process. So it's got Claim's fingers, fingerprints all over it. And what they've ended up doing is essentially coming up with quite a simple scenario matrix as to what we can look forward to or not within the next, let's say, really two election cycles. And essentially, they base their uh, scenarios across sort of two by two matrix. Okay, now before we get there, Bronwyn, and, and start explaining the matrix, because I fell asleep three times in that film and I'm not going to bother again. Um, but the, <laughs> uh, the the nature of scenario planning and the value of scenario planning, I had a lovely discussion with Clem once and he said he was working at Anglo-American and had been CEO of Anglo-Gold and then was given this job by Gavin Reilly of sort of trying to forecast the future and trying to predict what was likely to happen. And he very quickly came back to Gavin Reilly and said, look, there's no way we can 
forecast the future. But what we can do is create a series of possible outcomes based on you know what we know at the moment and how things change. We'll have to update our scenarios all the time. So scenarios are only, like any bit of data, I suppose, only as good as what you put into them. And these guys are three smart individuals with good resources behind them. And they've taken that same sort of view. We can't tell you what will happen, but we can tell you what is likely to happen based on what we know right now. And we make a series of assumptions. And yeah, he has, he has a good one. He has a good outcome. He has an okay outcome. And he has a terrible outcome, all of which are, you know, from what we know, equally possible. Yeah, exactly. And they've basically taken two primary questions that could be answered one way or another. And they've used that to sort of determine the four scenarios they've come up with. The one question is as to whether the ANC gets to maintain its 50% majority or not. And the other question that uh, they can't answer, but they can speculate about that will sort of point us in these four potential directions we can end up in is the idea as to whether the macroeconomic conditions, in other words, the things that we're not actually responsible for, kind of improve or get worse. So are we going to be beneficiaries of a rising tide that lifts all boats or is the general mac macroeconomic conditions as has seems likely over the last couple of days and weeks, never mind months and years, is going to be for a more sort of rocky ride and we're going to be largely left to our own devices. So this was sort of two key underlying questions that they based their assumptions on. I think the 50% majority or not is definitely a number that a lot of South Africans are talking about. And the question as to whether the economy in general is better or worse is also quite a simple idea to get your head around. That's the primary assumptions they made. And out of that, they kind of came up with these four different pictures as to what, as I said, we can look forward to or not. And they termed them all based on Clint Eastwood mythology, the good, the bad, the ugly, and a pocket full of sense are the four scenarios they came up with. So they didn't do the claim center, high road, low road, middle road. Rather, as I said, they used these two primary questions to try and make sense as to all things we're seeing around us. And most of the assumptions they made were looking at economics and politics. They were looking very much at government the public sector as leading where we are heading up to, whether that's for better or for worse, the only real influence that society and culture has in their framework and the scenarios they came up with is what direction we end up voting in. Do we vote for coalitions or do we vote for the ANC? That's pretty much the only role that the South African citizen had in this in these scenarios, which I think could be a criticism, but it could also be, I mean, you have to start with something and we have to start with questions that we can all understand. So, so that's what they came up with. But if you want me to go into a little bit of detail, I can paint those four scenarios very, very briefly. They've also got a lot more detail Please. in the book. And yeah, okay, let's go for it. So in terms of the good scenario, let's start with the with the good, which is seems to be the, the, the least likely at this point, but also the, the ray of sunshine and hope that they came up with, and they also started in that direction, is the idea that the ANC does not get a full outright majority and they have to go into a coalition with more than nine centrist party players, essentially. And as such, they, they kind of termed that scenario to be that we end up on a on a, on a a course of transformation, much like what we hoped we'd get with the Ramaphoria era. And we end up, as they said, kind of tending more towards a Estonian type future rather than a South African current status quo. That's basically the good scenario. The bad scenario is very similar in that the ANC does not retain an outright majority and has to form a coalition. But in the bad scenario, they form a coalition with more populist elements 
and the sort of they picture they paint the EFF there is a... And, and they, and sorry, sorry, Bron, when they go into bed with the EFF and screw the country over, or um, they act like adults and they yeah. make a better decision than that. Yes, yeah, so the, the sort of the more populist bad scenario is a more sort of Venezuela-like future where populism yep. reigns supreme and it's a bit chaotic and anarchist for everyone else that has to live through that. We can move on to the ugly and the pocket full of sense scenarios which have a bit more nuance in them. But these are when the ANC maintains its 50% majority, but either under conditions of economic growth, even if it's unfair growth, or lack of growth. And the ugly scenario, they foresee more like a, a slow slide into a more Zimbabwe-fied type feature for our country. So currently, with everything breaking from water, electricity, rails, and all those things you mentioned previously, they continue breaking and no one does very much to fix it and sort of continues on the same slippery path we're on. Whereas the pocketful of sense scenario is kind of, again, what we have right now, an increasing inequality in our society, also a longer, slower slide than the populist scenario detailed earlier. But here, there are pockets, as they said, of privilege that, as we know, we already have in this country behind high walls and within the halls of power and government and patronage. So there it's kind of more like a Brazil or Russia type future, as they kind of explain it to be, where cronyism gets to perhaps have a slightly bigger cookie jar to dip its fingers into. So that sort of status quo could last for quite a long time. So that's the sort of not particularly rosy picture that they've painted for us, but those are the four the four windows that they've given us to peer through and to give us some urgency in choosing, because I said the one thing that citizens had in terms of controlling which of those four destinies we, we end up in is who we vote for and whether we vote, which exactly. came across no, quite but, but strongly. Precisely <laughs> that. We're, we're, we're in the mess we're in because as voters, we've made yeah. consistently bad choices over an extended period of time. We've allowed the rot to set in. We've allowed um, the, the cronyism and the corruption to take hold. And we've endorsed it by our votes. That's what we have done. But things can change fairly quickly. I'm sure Eyewitness News will have more detail on this yeah. at half past seven. But just in the last couple of minutes, we see a statement out of the Department of uh, of the um, uh, of public enterprises, private Gordon's department, changes to the ESCOM board um, and Mpo Mokwana stepping down as chair. Uh, I'm delighted to see that um, the very sensible Ntato Nyati uh, has been, Teto Nyati has been put in as the interim chair of the board. Now we've got an interim chair and an interim chief executive. Maybe we'll get interim power. Oh, no, we have got that already. Um, but it is uh, interesting to see that Teto Nyati getting that particular role in an environment where there's still um, some disagreement as to what the future leadership of ESCOM is going to look like. Mm. You wonder if it's related to that particular fallout. But things can turn on a ticky. But what we're looking here is macro trends. The day-to-day -day almost doesn't matter as much as the long-term choices we make for ourselves here, Bronwyn. I mean, as an economist, you know, we're living yeah. with the consequence of the South African war. We're living with the consequence of colonialism. We're living with the consequence of Jan van Riebeck arriving in Table Bay on the 6th of April, 1652. Everything has a long tail and we've got to make better choices for our futures, right? Yeah, exactly. And the, the single defining factor that points the needle into one direction or another out of the scenarios they outline is very much the number of votes that the ANC gets. And they do go into quite a lot of detail as to how a small variance there could have a very big difference in terms of the likelihood of us ending up in different positions. But interestingly, the one scenario they've dismissed as being 
unreasonable or un or impossible, perhaps, which I think is perhaps a slight contradiction to the point you've just made now about the changes towards the ESCOM board and all the rest of it, is they dismiss outright the possibility of the ANC reforming itself from within. And I think that that could be a point that could be challenged. Of course, they have an argument and a reason for why they don't believe that that is a possibility. But I think that it's a, it's a point worthy of debate, particularly as you say that things can change and perhaps there is enough fear within the House right now that it might be the change might come within rather than from without due to a general understanding of basically the writing that's that's appearing on the wall right now maybe not the least from books like this <laughs> maybe some of that is no exactly and, and, and i just any of these I, possibilities outright Exactly. And I suspect one of the reasons why these three very clever guys have written this book is precisely to shake that tree to say, guys, you know, we think it's impossible for you to change. That may provoke a change that may provoke thinking that may say, oh, we'll prove you wrong. Watch us. We can do this. It's like the psychology you might use on a three year old. Oh, well, you couldn't possibly do that. Feed yourself. Oh, look, you are. Naughty. Well done. You've proven me wrong. Oh, no. What a pity in the best interest of the country. I hope these guys are wrong um, and that we do get some adult decisions, mostly by you and me, frankly, people who are expected to vote for the next government. Bronwyn Williams, thank you for that uh, tra- translating this evening the bare essentials of The Good, the Bad and the Ugly by Greg Mills, Mills Soko and Ray Hartley. It's out of the Brenthurst stable of work that they do, considerable research that is done. 702. Bruce is on The Money Show. Welcome to The Money Show, which is brought to you by APSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights through the Insight Series. APSA is a registered FSP. And Paul Nixon is with us. He's the head of behavioral finance at Momentum Investments. How I make money this evening. Well, what is a behavioral scientist? What is somebody who focuses in on behavioral finance? What do you have to study in order to become somebody in behavioral finance because nobody has yet had the time to study much to do with behavioral finance because it's a fairly new discipline. It's part psychology, part maths, part science, part guessing. Oh, no, don't leave, Paul. Please don't leave. Um, uh, Paul Nixon, uh, to talk to me about behavioral science. What is it exactly? Do we Have we got a definition? Is it sort of just understanding how humans react to incentives in a world that gives them lots of choice, some of it good, some of it bad. There's got to be a more eloquent way of, of describing it. Good evening, Bruce Sender. Thanks very much for having me and uh, good evening to all the listeners. So look, I think in a, in a nutshell, behavioral science is all about understanding human behavior through observation and experimentation. And um, uh, the experimentation part, part sounds a bit sinister, but if I can maybe give an example, so um, I spent some time, I was very lucky to spend some time with some of the the members of the OECD, so that's the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development in Europe in 2018, I think it was. And um, it was in a conference format. And at the beginning of the conference, when you sort of walked in, um, you know, these are the guys that, that incorporate behavioral science into public policy. So that's, you know, how do we get kids to eat healthier in canteens? How do we get people to pay their taxes? And in this conference format, you know, you, in the morning, you get the normal sort of, you know, activity around the coffee and tea station. And the first morning, there was two options, apples, whole apples and brownies, right? some very, very lovely, big square brownies. And uh, the second morning, the options had changed. Now, of course, we didn't, none of us realized, um, but the apples were sliced and the brownies were sliced into small pieces. 
Now, of course, no one had any idea what was going on, but towards the end of the conference, they actually were conducting an experiment. So they were basically showing that by changing the choice architecture, so that's the way they presented options to the people at the conference, they could increase the consumption of apples by 25%. And that, that they did that in exactly this way. So because the whole apple was changed into little pieces of apple and the whole brownie was sliced into smaller pieces, people consumed more apples and less brownies. So the sort of hypothesis behind that is that consuming whole apples, for example, if you have a whole apple at a conference table, you're creating a friction cost, right? So, you know, now if I'm going to eat the apple, I have to figure out what to do with the core. I might not like to eat the skin. And people actually want to make the right decision. We want to eat the apples, right? But if you don't present the choices to us in the right way, sometimes we go for eating the brownie, which is the easiest option. So, so that really gives a, a very nice example of behavioral science being all about experimentation in different contexts, presenting choices to us in different ways. And in doing so, hopefully getting us to do better things or things that um, are in our own best interest. Basically manipulating us, manipulating us to behave differently. Right? I mean, well, managing our behaviors. How do, how do we say it nicely in a way that doesn't sound like it's threatening and scary? Yeah. Well, Bruce, look, manipulation is obviously exactly the opposite of what we're trying to do. So if, if, if you try and manipulate people, you don't call it a nudge, you call it a sludge, right? So and I think what, what you're <laughs> referring to, and that has been sort of thrown into the equation a few times, is, you know, what happened in the 80s and 90s with the infomercials, right? So that was when we all bought Adblaster 5000s, and they were damn impossible to get back. Um, so people just kept them, right? So, so there was so much friction involved in actually getting these things back to the providers that people just ended up keeping them. Um, that, that's kind of not what behavioral science is about, because in the brownie apple example, you know, we are, we are helping people to make better decisions in their own best interests. So eating healthy, for example, is quite easy. I think we can all agree that that is in our own best interests, and that really is the key definition. So we don't want to change the economic incentives too much, or actually at all. Um, what we want to do is present things using things like psychology, for example, in a way that helps people to make the right decision or the decision that they would have made um, in their own best interest anyway. And that's exactly, if you read the book Nudge, for example, you know, another, another easy example here is putting healthy food at eye level, for example, because human beings are just too lazy to look up and down. So you're leveraging psychology there to, um, you know, to help people make better choices. So talk to me then about how you make money in, in this world of behavioral finance, because you are employed um, at Momentum. You are the head of behavioral finance. What is your job? Um, is your job to encourage people to yeah. invest? Is it your job to encourage people to invest in a certain way? Is it your job to encourage people to invest only with Momentum? What, what, is, what are the T's and C's that come with, with your job description? <laughs> sure. So, so the, the examples that I've given, you know, sort of give you an indication of how behavioral science works, right? And that's the experimentation piece. Now, if you want to conduct experiments, for example, you need to have, especially in a financial services company, you need to have the underlying architecture to do so. And I'll explain a little bit about what that means. But, but if you look at applying this in a financial context, you know, there's a constant tension that human, that human beings have between making the right decision and the comfortable decision. And I mean, if you, if you look at that back at the Stanford Marshmallow experiments and you actually watch that video quite closely, it, it's, it's quite cool because you can see that the kids, you know, the kids know what the right decision is. So wait 10 minutes and get two marshmallows, right? So one marshmallow becomes two marshmallows in 10 minutes. But if you watch their faces quite closely, you'll see that the physical discomfort, because they know what the right decision is, but of course, the comfortable <laughs> decision is to shove the marshmallow in your face right now. 
So in finance, that's a good way of kind of describing this constant tension that we have between making the right decision and the comfortable decision. And, and you know, we've done a lot of work um, in terms of market turmoil, for example, both up and down, um, and how people tend to erode value, for example, when they make decisions on, you know, on emotional, on instinct, for example. So, so in a nutshell, I mean, that is the, the context, you know, you need to understand a bit about finance and, and economic theory to do so. But we focus on four behavioral tracks. So there are four behaviors that we want to change in an investment business or rather have an influence on in an investment business. The one is, how do we get people invested? Right. So how do we get people to make that decision to save instead of spend now? How do we keep them invested? So how do we stop them from incurring this behavior tax? And that's making a decision in the spur of the moment, for example, that locks in losses. And we've seen... Again, this year, um, South Africans lost about 110 million rand in value from their portfolios from making impulsive decisions when markets were going up and down. And we've seen a very up and down, um, a very up and down story for markets for the year as well. So how do we get them invested, keep them invested? How do we get them to invest more um, of their hard-earned money? And how do we get them to invest differently? And when I say invest differently, you know, I've been, as a goals-based investment house, we obviously would like people to diversify more. So I'll put all their eggs in one basket so that you know, we can give them a better investment outcomes. So those are the four behavioral tracks that we work on. Um, and we use, again, psych psychology and technology that's using machine learning to kind of scale this, to give us insights at a very, very big level or high level in terms of our aggregate consumer behavior um, to design interventions, experiments like we, like we talked about in the beginning and hopefully change that behavior. And psychology is a big part. Uh no, it's huge. And I think everybody in financial services nowadays is trying to find the way in which to talk to people in a way that gets them to behave in an uncomfortable way. Because so often, and I mean, everybody we talk to on the show when it comes to investing and making investment decisions is purely, is very good on the theory and goes, you know what, in difficult times, what you do is yeah. you like, you buy down and markets fall by 10%. Everything's 10% cheaper. So yeah. all you do, bro, is you just keep your, you, you just keep your direct <laughs> debit in place and you just buy more. And invariably what happens is that people get to a point of tension as so many people did when COVID happened um, and markets mm -hmm. fell precipitously very, very quickly. I mean, it was just, it was terrifying how fast markets fell. Then suddenly one day they stopped and turned around and everybody returned to a more logical outcome. And it was, well, hold on a second. What just happened there? There was first broad panic, mm -hmm. then two, this will be okay. Three, let's you know, quickly get in before we lose out. And things calm down again. But it just does show that the vast majority of people in times of crisis and times of stress don't tend to behave logically. They tend to go into flight or, uh, you know, fight or flight mode, neither of which is particularly helpful yeah. when it comes to investing for the long term. Precisely. And I mean, the Wharton Business School have actually done some fascinating research here. So, so if you look at behavioral science slash finance, so, you know, finance in a, in a, in a financial context, you know, the Wharton Business School have actually showed that there are other elements at play as well. So neurobiology and neuroscience is also important. And, and simply because the chemicals that are happening between our ears when we make these decisions are also important. So, so if you have cortisol, for example, flowing through your, through your bloodstream, your, your brain or your access to your logical thinking center actually gets turned off, right? Because you're activating fight or flight. So your brain is like, well, it's time not to think. It's time to act. So. Our actual biology is also working against us in the sense as well. Um, and the Wharton Business School actually published a very interesting paper on that, on how that kind of fight or flight turns off your logical thinking center. So, 
you know, you think about not driving under the influence of, of alcohol, but you shouldn't be making investment calls under the influence of cortisol, for example, right? And these things are <laughs> so easy to talk about when, you know, when it's not happening to you, but I can almost guarantee that when it's your money or your portfolio or, you know, your stock trading account, for example, you're likely to act quite differently. And I think that that really is where the, the financial advisor, we're having this third party who's not emotionally invested, um, or at least not emotionally, it's not their money, um, to help people make decisions that um, are a little bit more, um, well, a lot more in their own best interest, you know, but also to act as sort of a coach, um, you know, just like a, a sports coach, to have a financial coach is extremely important because of those same principles. You've spoken about this publicly, so I'm hoping you won't mind me asking you about it in this platform. But I was at an event the other day and you were talking about a personal experience where you and your wife, who are fans of coffee, decided that because you couldn't find the perfect coffee in the perfect coffee environment, you would create it. And it, and you, unlike most of us who have had similar thoughts, you've actually went out and did it. And it was lovely and you created the most beautiful welcoming space with what I can only imagine because I never had the privilege of sampling it at the time was the most astonishing uh, choice of coffee. And I'm sure you created coffee Nirvana, but your only thing that you got wrong um, was a small matter of timing. And no matter what had happened to you in uh, October, November, December of 2019, what happened next was never going to give you an easy ride at all because that was COVID that was lockdowns. That was, the pandemonium out of your control that followed. And I think I've represented it fairly and accurately. I'm just wondering how in the mind of somebody who's an expert in behavioral economics and behavioral finance, did you act logically in that environment? Were you able to disassociate from the cortisol feeding your flight or fight? Or did you fall into classic traps of, you know, when things go wrong, boy, they go wrong fast and you actually almost facilitate them? Yeah, so the short answer, Bruce, is no. Um, I did not act. I mean, I've studied this stuff. Um, you know, I've had a lot of experience in this stuff. I can tell you again, when it's uh, when it's your money or when it's your sort of um, when it's your coffee shop on the line or when it's your business on the line, you will not act like rationally. I can almost guarantee that. Simply because, I mean, if you think about it, and we've done the same research in a stock stock trading context, um, and we saw what what is called the disposition effect, which basically means that. You know, if you buy buy a stock at 10 Rand and the price goes up, you become regret averse. So you tend to actually trade too frequently. And then when the price goes down, you become loss averse. So you don't trade enough because you're scared of kind of locking in that loss. The exact same thing happened to us in that context. I mean, we were actually thinking of sort of doubling down. So so at the at the height of the pandemic, about six months into it, we were going to open another shop to try and make up for the losses that we were experiencing in the existing shop. And even go into a completely different business, you know, opening a restaurant, for example, which is something we never wanted to do and something we had no experience in. So so the kinds of things or the kinds of stuff that we were talking about um, were completely um, were completely out there and seemed kind of rational at the time um, simply because of the way we felt about the decision. And I think that that's the most important thing. You need someone who is removed from that to keep you honest in terms of these these um, decisions that you're making. So the logical thinking partner to say, look, actually, were you ever going to open a restaurant? Well, if the answer to that is no, well, then you probably shouldn't open one now. In fact, we, would you have started a coffee shop during COVID knowing what you know now? And the answer is, of course, no. So why would you think of going to start another one? 
So these are the kinds of things that sound again when you're when you're talking about them sort of at ten to eight on a on a national radio radio show sound very logical, but but you know when you're at yeah. the height of of COVID and about and about to lose a, a good amount of your savings, um, it's a absolutely. No, but and and that's the thing. So, how did you then reach a decision? How did you cope in that environment? Because with all of your thinking, all of your training, all of the logic that you can apply to other people's problems, and 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 certainly you are absolutely rational when it comes to stock market investing yeah. and the way in which people should behave in times of crisis, and one can be critical of the way people do respond suddenly. You are on a cliff edge of not financial self-destruction, but certainly a significant loss of money. Um, and you are in a partnership in this with your wife. And that changes the dynamics as well, because there's an emotional connection to yeah. the individual with whom you've gone into business. Um, there is an emotional yeah. connection to the money that you are losing and you can see it disappearing. And there's the, uh, the emotional connection to an idea that was meant to set you free, which yeah. was meant to be a fun project that was meant to be this thing that was going to change coffee around the world or whatever your ambition was. It's a whole <laughs> bunch of feelings as opposed to facts and dealing with the cold, hard truths of what you're facing. Yeah. Bruce, you've summarized it very nicely. And I mean, I, I think that that was exactly it, right? So you, you summarized very well the cocktail of emotions. So, so two things really um, happened, which were very, very important. So one, I would say um, definitely engaging with friends and family, but particularly uh, my father-in-law, so my wife's father, who is um, has studied psychology before and, you know, kind of kept us um, continually had these conversations with us and these never forceful, just like, have you thought about X or Y? And that was an extremely important part of it. The second part, though, was actually something, and I still say to my wife these days, we should send these, we should have bought these people a present because just up the road. So what happened during COVID was that, funnily enough, people were actually expanding businesses as people started going out of business. So what, what everyone thought sort of during COVID, that everyone was just going to be hyper sort of risk averse, people actually started opening up businesses, one, one because they were losing their jobs and they needed to, they needed to take their pension and actually do that. And other companies were actually taking advantage of companies like us who were trying to, who were actually moving out of the market. So just up the road, another coffee shop opened um, and actually one that was in a better location to us. And we noticed one Saturday that our sales that we had, we, we, were, we were already under sitting with significant pressure and our sales sort of, I think, fell by 30 or 40% in a day. Um, and we kind of had that sick feeling that, hang on a second, someone else has actually opened up something up the road and, you know, kind of this is where we are. So those two things, and that was the best decision because straight after that, you know, Pick and Pay offered actually to buy out a few shops in the center and we had our exit ticket. But that sort of realization or that timing of that other place opening up was extremely important. Um, and then, of course, again, having the counsel of a, of a third party that was, sort of, you know, getting us back to the original intention of what we were trying to do and how this was so much different from what the actual intention of the project was. And I think the key learning here, um, Bruce and I, Morgan Housel actually summarizes this very, very well in his book, The Psychology of Money. And, and by the way, if, if yeah. you haven't read it or if your listeners haven't read it, no, it's one a, book that it, you need it to is, read, definitely this one. It is remarkable. And I endorse your, your yeah. I endorse that statement completely because, yeah, he is a, it, it's simple, it's clear, it's easy to understand, it's easy to follow. It yeah. is deceptively simple, but brilliant in every aspect, yeah.
Exactly. And I mean, he, he, he comes, he puts this um, sort of idea forward that human beings don't deal with failure very well. Um, so, so, success, so failure can be a very bad teacher, can also be a good teacher. So, so if you, if failure is, uh, well, failure is a bad teacher because it hides risk. So, so what happens in these situations when you have a failure in a coffee shop is you tend to take that responsibility on yourself. So, so you know, COVID was never something that could have been, but that's risk, right? I mean, when you open a business, there is risk, and that is the very definition of, definition of risk. You can't manage it. I mean, people were still looking at force majeure contracts. I think now everyone looks at those kind of contracts in their leases that they sign. But at that stage, you don't know what you don't know, right? So that is just pure risk. If you take responsibility for that, you don't learn the right things from the failure. And the right thing from the failure is that, you know, yes, we could have done that better, absolutely. But um, what, you know, what can we learn from this? In other words, how can we choose a better location next time? Because there's course stuff that we can learn there. But we leave that kind of COVID at the door. You know, we don't take responsibility for that. And I think that's an, a really, really important part um, of processing failure correctly. Um, and I think that's where psychology and again, having having someone who can actually help and talk you through this means that, you know, this shouldn't scare you off. You should throw the dice again. So make sure that you prepare correctly. You know, when you open a business, make sure you're not throwing everything at it, that, you know, if the risk bites you, which it bites us, unfortunately, that you can throw the dice again. And I think that's that's an extremely important part. And and value that was, you know, sort of financial advice um, from, a, from a psychology um, sort of angle or perspective, it was incredibly value, valuable. I mean, I think we can quantify that. I mean, we, we've almost made some some horrible, bigger mistakes. Um, so, so, yeah, but that is definitely a key learning. And just that that sense of I'm, uh, even in the toughest environments, to be able to take outside advice and to be able to listen to that outside advice, and possibly the most powerful learning there from a behavioral point of view is going back to what your purpose was, which is why so often financial advisors will interrogate this point until it is so boring and you don't want to talk about it anymore. But it is that whole concept of what is your purpose? What are you trying to achieve? Once you understand what it is that you're trying to achieve, you you should make fewer bad judgment calls when things go wrong. You should. Uh, because you should be able to go back to a point where you said, actually, this was the purpose of the thing. It's not working out. It should therefore be easier to cut or to change or to sell or whatever the case might be. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. And I mean, I think, you know, we, we had a, um, I was having a look, a listen to or a read through some of Morningstar's research, uh, research the other day as well. And human beings are quite bad at this whole goal, goal identification process. We're, we're naturally bad at looking at, you know, thinking very far forward into the future. Um, and that's definitely a way in which financial planners can help um, help people sort of unpack their goals properly because success means different things to different people. Um, so, you know, retirement, for example, is not just a goal. I mean, if you have actually showed that Morningstar showed that sort of, you know, when, when they expand the list of possible goals, people's goals change because then it sort of opens up new things that they haven't thought of before. So, so coming back to your original purpose is, is of course, always very, very important. Um, but I think that people need to spend more time on the whole goal identification process as well. I think that's a very, very important part in psychology that, that is often ignored. So the average price of every cup of coffee that you have in your house, I think, is down to what, uh, uh, 584 <laughs> around 16 or something? As you, every time you make a price of uh, a cup of coffee, the price drops because you've got the world's most expensive domestic coffee maker at home because you couldn't sell it in COVID. <laughs> Do you ever take that coffee machine, which is amongst the world's greatest machines, and put it into another coffee shop or you want what's it twice burned once shy or whatever that old-fashioned saying is once bitten twice shy there we go yeah that 
Look, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think you know, that's a question I get regularly, you know, will you do it again? Um, and the answer is absolutely. I mean, there, there's something about um, making something with your, with your kind of own two hands and sort of selling it to someone and putting a smile on their face. There's definitely something there. And there's, a, there's definitely a psychological utility to that. So, um, so I would probably do it in a more contained or small environment. Um, you know, so, so signing a big scary lease, I think, is something that, um, you know, maybe put a coffee shop in the back of a, an FJ cruiser or something like that and move it so that if the location's bad, you just move your car. You know, we're a different format to, to the coffee business, but um, I would definitely do it again. I think that um, I think that we've processed the failure correctly. I think that's that's part of what we were talking about this evening. Um, yeah, so I would definitely do it again. Um, we were very, very lucky that we didn't have to. I mean, there was a, a couple of shops down, you know, down from us who sold, I think, a million rands worth of capital equipment for like 25,000 rand. So, and it was terrible. Yeah. You know, those horrible things happening yeah. during during COVID. But we were lucky that we could actually take the coffee machine and, and make a coffee bar at home you know, and enjoy the coffee and, you know, um, enjoy the kind of experience. And as you say, you know, the first the first cup of coffee that we made probably cost about seven hundred and fifty thousand bucks. Um, but you know, the second one and third one, the unit, the unit cost comes comes down. So you know, at some point, the coffee will be more free. <laughs> It's never going to be free. But hey, the scars you will be able to tell people about for generations to come. Paul Dixon, thank you. Paul is the head of behavioral finance at Momentum. Wonderful insights for us this evening. Thank you very much on How I Make Money this evening on The Money Show, brought to you by ABSA CIB, driving impactful action-led insights through the Insights series. ABSA is a registered FSB.